You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship and God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Good to be in a place where people gather who love the Lord. And I understand that these same people, you guys, also love children around the world. There are many of you that are sponsoring kids with compassion, and we are so delighted that you are partnering with us and partnering with the local churches around the world. So thank you for doing that. I hope today, as we open the Word of God, that uh, you will will have even a, a greater sense of the spiritual destiny of what you are doing when you invest in the life of a child through compassion. So let's pray together and invite God through His Spirit to just minister to us. Father, we're delighted to open Your Word now. We know that Your Word is life. Your Word is truth. We can't get enough of Your Word. Oh, it, it is You. It is You revealed to us in such a precious and unique way. So God, we turn to your word today to hear your voice. I pray that my voice will be in the background. It would just be a tool that you use, but that your spirit would speak to us and help us to get to know your heart for the poor just a little better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to tell you a story this morning, and that story is going to be my sermon. So I want to talk to you about the story of poverty and walk you through what the Bible has to say about poverty, helping the poor, and what is the real effective mechanism or tool that changes the heart, the life, the eternal destiny of the poor. By doing that, I want to tell you a story about an individual, a young man who I came to know many years ago. He's one of our Compassion, what we call alumni, so he's gone through our program. He's graduated. He is now an adult. He's got a professional career. He's married. He's a faithful husband. He's got children. He's a devoted father, but most of all, he is a passionate and devoted Christ follower. I got a photograph of him up here, and you'll see that we look alike. Um, he's got a tad bit more hair than I do, and whenever we're together, uh, I usually sneak up behind him, and I'll put my hand over his shoulder so he can see, and I'll go like this, and he grabs his hair. I don't know why God favored him more than me. But um, I, I do confess of the sin of envy. Jay's life looks nothing like his picture. He's a happy, just outgoing individual. He's actually a professional radio DJ. He has given, he is giving his life to sharing the gospel over radio. He's a gifted speaker at youth groups. He is uh, working with underprivileged 
teenagers. He is just devoted to the God that he loves and he serves. He's now in his early 30s and just a powerhouse for God. But it wasn't always that way. Because Jay was born and raised in one of the worst slums in Africa. A slum that Sharon and I have been in many times. We have walked through the narrow pathways, the trenches of sewer running down, the agony, the agony of, of heartbreak and pain. It's a, it's a slum right in the heart of Nairobi, Kenya, called Mathari. Mathari, you may have heard about it. Google it. It's a, it's a place less than one square mile with over one million people living in the worst destitute circumstances you could ever imagine. I can say this emphatically. You would not treat your dog or cat like the people have to live there. It's a place where it's lawless. The police are afraid to go in there because they don't usually come out alive. It's a place where criminals live and make their living. It's a place where destitute people who come from the rural areas to the city to make it well end up. It's a place of child slavery. It's a place of prostitution. It's got everything you could imagine. And the stench would make you want to just stop breathing. It was in that environment Jay was born. His dad abandoned the family. He's left with his mom and two younger siblings. And to help, to help actually survive and to help his mom and, and brothers and sisters to survive, he would go out onto the streets of Nairobi and he would beg, he would steal if he had to, just to survive. One day, he's about eight years old, and he tells the story that he was out on the streets all day, and he couldn't get anything. No one gave him any food. No one gave him any money. He was hungry. He was destitute. He was in a terrible situation emotionally, to the point where the day was coming to an end, and he had nothing to take home to his brother and sister and his mother. And he, he saw this lady walking on the sidewalk carrying a purse. And something came over him that he came up behind the lady, grabbed the purse, and started running. But he was pretty weak. He had not eaten all day. He was a weakly, sickly young boy. And he couldn't outrun the policeman that watched it happen. And that evening he was arrested and put in jail. Put in jail with adults, with hardened criminals. And if you have any idea what a jail might be like in Nairobi, Kenya, it would blow your imagination. It was in that jail that he was absolutely broken as a young boy. He thought life couldn't get any worse than what he had been living in. But here he is now in a worse place. And so he prayed a prayer to a God that he didn't even know existed. He had not been taught about God. He didn't know whether God 
lived or not. He didn't know if he did live, whether he had ears and whether he would hear the prayer of somebody that destitute. But he prayed and he said, God, if you are real, please get me out of this place and I won't steal again. How many of you prayed that prayer as a child, maybe even an adult? You found yourself in a situation where you knew you did wrong, you knew, you knew you were in trouble, and you promised God, if you get me out of this one, I won't do it again. That was his prayer. He didn't know if God heard him or not, but God did. He got released from jail a while later. He went back into the slum to visit to his mom and his brother and sister. And within a few days, you see, here's the thing about God. He doesn't just hear you. He follows you. Yeah. Not like Facebook followers. He doesn't press like or whatever. But God doesn't just hear us when we call on him. He follows us. And God followed him back to that slum. And within a couple of days... Somebody from the little local church in the heart of the slum. A little church called Redeemer Gospel Church. I've been there. I've preached there. It's an incredible lighthouse in the darkness of this hell hole called Mathari. The pastor is a man of God who was an engineer, a Kenyan engineer, who gave up his career to follow God's call to plant a church there of all places. Someone from that church came to Jay's home, introduced themselves, and invited Jay's mother to register him in this program called Compassion. He had no idea what it was about. His mom, thinking this was the golden opportunity, registered him. He started going to the church, to school, to the church program, to the Compassion program after school. And within a short amount of time, he began to learn about this God that he wondered if he really existed. And it wasn't long until he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. If you were to ask Jay, now that he's a grown-up adult, if you were to ask him, what was the best thing that compassion did for you when you were a sponsored child? He would say emphatically, compassion introduced me to Jesus. You know, we did a lot more for him than that. We fed him every day. We gave him clothes, a school uniform, paid for his tuition, his books, sent him to the doctor many times, paid for medicine. We did a lot more. But what had the greatest impact? Jesus Christ and the gospel. You know, we look at this world and you take this globe and call the world, and you look at it. And we see in Scripture that when God created the world, He created it a place that was perfect. So Genesis, so I always like to start at the beginning of the Bible. It's the easiest place to find. Genesis chapter 1, the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 31. You know, when, when God made everything... I've, I, I'm amazed at how creative he was. I don't know what your hobbies are, 
but my hobby is woodworking and building. I, I love th making things out of wood. That's where I lost my finger. Um, I love building houses. I love building patio decks. I grew up, my dad was a carpenter, so I, I got it naturally. But when, whenever I finish a project, I like to kind of stand back, you know, and just admire it. You know, not too long, because then you'll realize, you, oh, that's crooked, oh, that didn't, oh. But just stand back and admire the work of your hands. There's nothing like, my wife is an amazing cook. And when she prepares a meal, it's, 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 it's a work of art. And just to stand back and admire your, the work of your hands. Some of you are great musicians. Some of you are great singers. Or whatever your skill or talent is. When you do something, isn't it wonderful just to stand back and just, you know, not with pride, but just satisfaction saying, wow, that was really good. That's how I picture God here in verse 31. I picture God having made everything. He's all done now. He's got the last little detail done. You know, he didn't, he didn't make the fish before he made the water. He did everything in proper sequence. He stands back. He folds his arms and goes, that was real good. Some parts of Canada, they, he would have said, that's right some good. Everything he made was perfect. In this world that he created, there was no such thing as poverty. In fact, there was no word in the vocabulary of Adam and Eve for poverty or for want. W-A-N-T. The concept did not exist. Everything Adam and Eve wanted or needed, God provided. There was no, no way that they could even imagine that there would be such a place or a time where people would be without the necessities of life. Poverty did not exist. But then one day, as we read on in Scripture, Adam and Eve broke God's law. They disobeyed the one thing he told them not to do. The one thing, like everything else is great. I only have one restriction, and you couldn't do that. Don't eat that fruit of that tree. Because if you do, it will set in motion tragedy that you won't be able to ever comprehend or ever stop the effect of. One thing. So what did they do? They did that one thing. They ate the forbidden fruit. And so it, it set off in motion events that would turn God's perfect creation, where there was no poverty, into a place where poverty now becomes the default setting of every human being born on the face of God's earth, even up to our own generation. Every human being is born into a world of poverty, whether it's physical, economic, spiritual poverty. It is now the default setting. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Because of one man's sin, one woman's sin, all of humanity came under a curse. 
And it's this curse that is at the heart of poverty today. Whether it's war or corruption, whether it's poor crop yields or total economic collapse, it can all be traced back to the fall of man, to that one individual sin. Is it fair? I don't think so. From my human perspective, it's not fair. Why should I, in 2020, suffer for something somebody else did thousands of years ago? But that's the way God had set up all of his world. You obey me and everything is fine and perfect. You disobey and you turn the key to a door that you can never open, never close again. Romans 5.12 tells us this. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death. And no one is exempt from either sin or death. Anybody here never sinned? You should have seen the hands that went up in the first service. No, just kidding. Anyone here never going to die? We're not exempt from sin or death because of this. That sin, he says, disturbed relations with God and with everything around them and everyone. Listen to this part. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did, that is, by disobeying a specific command of God, still had to experience the devastation of sin. That's the situation we are in today. Poverty first entered the world because of sin. And now everything has been impacted by that sin. Think about it. Our relationship with the land has been impacted. What was it like to farm before that day? No such thing as thorns and weeds. None. You throw a seed in the ground and you stand back and watch it grow. But after that day, after that event of Adam and Eve's sin, now mankind has to constantly fight with the earth just to grow food to eat. That relationship between humans and the earth was impacted by that sin. Our relationship with one another was impacted by that sin. Where do you think war comes from? Where do you think hatred comes from? Where do you think interfamily fighting comes from? It is a result of sin, that original sin. Our relationship with the land, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with God was impacted. The Bible tells us that every afternoon, Adam and Eve used to go to Starbucks, grab a latte, and then stroll around the Garden of Eden with God. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit there. It might have been Tim Hortons, I don't know. They had this beautiful relationship with God. Every afternoon, they walked together until that one day. And then from that point on, their relationship with God was estranged. They were separated from God. And sin has affected the way that sinful human beings set up institutions and systems. Broken people 
create broken systems. Do you think so? Have you heard of what's happening in Venezuela? Do you know anything about Haiti? Do you know anything about Iran and Syria? And I could go on and on. Broken people create broken systems that perpetuate poverty. It all can be traced back to that original sin. It is from this curse, the curse of this sin, that Jesus came to set people free. So if poverty at its basic level is a spiritual issue, the result of sins present in the world, then there must be a spiritual solution. Would you agree? If the cause is spiritual, the answer or the fix must also be spiritual. That's why I am so perplexed over these 36 years of working in the developing world at how much we do as human beings in the West to try and fix poverty and we're not making a whole lot of progress because we are treating symptoms, not causes. If poverty at its basic level is a spiritual issue, an issue of the heart, then the answer to poverty must be also spiritual. So then we go to one of my favorite verses in Scripture. In fact, it's the verse that I base my, my latest book on, Strategic Compassion, Luke 4, 18. It's one of my favorite stories. It wasn't always. I've, I've been in full-time ministry since 1977. It wasn't always my favorite chapter, but it has become my favorite verse after working so extensively around the world. You see, the setting is that Jesus, now an adult, travels around the area, the countryside, goes from one town, one village to the other, by foot, not by Uber. And as he comes into a particular town or village, on the Sabbath, they would look for a synagogue. A synagogue, basic way to understand a synagogue, it's like a house church. It's, they had the temples, they were the big formal churches. Then they had these synagogues that were in almost every town, certainly every city, but most every town in some villages. They were run often by lay people, and they would be a group of men meeting together. Women weren't allowed inside in those days. Children weren't allowed inside. They would come together, and they would do three things. They would pray together. They would worship together, and they would read scripture together. Sound familiar? That's what our churches are based on these several thousand years later. And Jesus, whenever he came into one of these synagogues, he'd sit down in the back usually. But because of his fame as a teacher, as a rabbi, he would often get invited to come up and share the sermon that day or read the scripture. Now picture this, he's back in his hometown. You know, one of the hardest things to do, even the Bible says a prophet is without honor, where? In his own town. 
The little church I grew up in has never, ever invited me back to preach. It's a church of about 40 people. I have preached to crowds of 20, 30,000 people around the world in one setting. I have never been invited back to the little country church where I grew up. I don't hold it against them. They probably think I wouldn't come, but I would be honored. But a prophet is not without honor or is without honor in his own town. That applied to Jesus. So Jesus is back home. Everybody knows him. They're, they're, many of the people actually in the audience that day would have had some furniture in their house made by Jesus and his father. They know him. In fact, they said to one another, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Wow, look what's become of, become of him. You know, I, I often tease people that, without bragging, I am the son of a carpenter. I come from the east, and every winter I walk on water. <laughs> Enough said. Jesus was not a big celebrity, per se. He was more of a, how in the world did he ever get where he is? Right? So they know him. He's among his own people. He comes in. He tries to probably just fit in. But they go, hey, 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 Joseph's son, come up. And they pass him the scroll. And Jesus never did anything kind of off the cuff. He was very strategic. He rolled the scroll open to the book of Isaiah. And he selected one verse very systematically. And that verse was, we now have in Luke 4.18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Then he very kind of almost theatrically rolled the scroll back up, put it in its holder and went down to his seat. Then he made this statement that really annoyed people. Today, this scripture has come alive in your presence. That was a bold, bold, audacious declaration because what he's saying is that he's actually from God. He might even be implying he is God. And we know he's just Joseph's son, the carpenter. You see, to give some context here is very important. Because context for scripture makes it come alive to us and makes it much easier to understand. The, the time frame that Jesus lived in as a boy growing up the world, his world at least, was a very, very destitute and poor world. We would have classified the world that Jesus grew up in as a third world years ago when that term was vogue, or now a developing world. People were poor. Most people lived day by day, just existing. Now, like today... There were the rich, most of them were the Romans. There were the rich, very few, but most people 
were very destitute and poor. In fact, as you look at history, you remember that further back in the Old Testament, people lived to be hundreds of years old. Do you know what the lifespan was during the time Christ lived on the earth? 35. 35. When Jesus died at age 33, he was near the end of his earthly lifespan. Why did life drop so drastically? Because of pestilence, because of wars, because of sickness and diseases and plagues. In fact, plagues were so common that if a family member were to, to fall ill, the family wouldn't even take care of them for fear of catching whatever caused their sickness. It wasn't, it wasn't normal for people to show love and compassion to even their own kin. They would be left to dehydrate, to die. It was the Christians, actually, the Christ followers who came in and were known, were famous for helping the sick, even when their own family members weren't. That's the life, that's the, the circumstances that Jesus stepped into at this time frame. So people knew poverty. People in the audience, the women and children looking in through the windows and listening, they knew poverty. They didn't just read about it or watch it on TV. They knew poverty. They lived poverty. So when Jesus said, I bring good news for the poor, you can bet your bottom dollar that they listened. They were paying attention. They might have been, you know, on, on Facebook before then, but they put their phones down and paid attention because they needed help. And those words caught their attention. The problem was, they didn't like Jesus' definition. They didn't like the answer to poverty that he later brought. They didn't like his solution to poverty. They thought he was probably going to start up a feeding program or an NGO that would, uh, that would help the poor. Maybe he's going to go fight the Romans and get some of their tax dollars back to build some infrastructure. But Jesus goes on to tell them and explain that the answer to poverty, the good news that he's talking about, is actually the gospel. They were so offended that if you read on, they actually tried to kill him just within a few hours of that synagogue meeting. They tried to push him off a cliff on the edge of town and kill him, but he quietly escaped. I bring good news to the poor but they weren't prepared to hear the good news, just like today. We are not prepared to hear the good news for the poor. Do you know why? Because most Canadians are shelling out money hand over fist for the poor. They're giving on their credit cards, they're calling the 1-800 numbers, they're going online, they're putting money in buckets or whatever, because it makes us feel good and we think we're helping the poor. Most of us don't have a clue how that money gets used. The answer to poverty has not changed from Adam and Eve's day to today. 
the answer to poverty has never been money. It's never been food. It's never been education or health care. These are all necessary. These are all good. These are all proper, but they don't deal with the root cause of poverty. They deal with the symptoms of poverty. And that's why we're not making the progress we ought to. I've worked in Haiti most of my, well, all of my 36 years. I've been there hundreds of times. I was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, the very moment the earthquake struck. I know what poverty is like. I've seen it firsthand. The billions of dollars that poured into Haiti after the earthquake should have revolutionized that country. You go back today, and it's hard to find much impact. Money does not fix poverty. Another car, car wash, another fundraiser does not change poverty. What changes poverty is the power of the gospel. When hearts are changed. I've learned over my experience in many countries that communities do not develop. Yet that's where most of our foreign aid money goes. Communities do not develop. People develop. And when people develop, they change their environment. I met a pastor in Bolivia last year. Sharon and I were speaking at a pastor's conference there. And he grew up in a home where his father actually had a job driving a truck. But he spent all of his money on alcohol and other things. The family were destitute. They were poorer than many of the families whose parents didn't have a job. He actually was this little, he was telling us when he was a little boy, he was so poor, the local church had a compassion program and they, they signed him up and he got a sponsor to go through the compassion program. It was in that program he accepted Jesus Christ as his savior. He begins to share with his mom and his dad what he's learning in the church compassion program. His mom eventually, so curious, she comes to church. She accepts Christ. Several years went by, and his father came to the church one day, just curious what was going on. Some men in the church befriended him. They got to know him. They became his friend. Fast forward, he accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior. Today, that little boy is pastoring that church. And he says, all the interventions that the community and the government and other people did to try and help my family failed. But when my dad accepted Jesus Christ, everything changed. He still made the same hourly wage, but instead of spending it on alcohol and whatever, he spent it on food for his family and care for his family. Nothing changed his situation like the gospel. And that's the truth of what Jesus meant in Luke 14. Matthew 28 tells us that we are to go into all the world and we are to make disciples. Compassion, as far as I know, and I think I'm pretty well versed, Compassion is the only child sponsorship organization in the world that uses evangelism and discipleship 
as our core business strategy, our core ministry strategy. Every other sponsorship agency that you could name uses community development or relief or whatever, good things. But we have found over years that the answer to poverty is Jesus Christ. And so we have honed our entire structure and strategy to be evangelistic and discipleship-based. That's why we only work with churches, some 8,000 churches around the world. We only partner with churches. Every single Compassion Project is in a local church. Every adult that touches those children is a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is taught to them. Now, we do many other things. We feed over 2 million children every day. That's, that's just a daily thing. We clothe them. We buy, we buy health care for them, medicines. We do everything from hearing aids to open heart surgery. We are one of the largest water NGOs in some of the countries where we work, but that's not why we exist. We exist to bring the gospel to the poor because water never, ever changed an eternal life. Jesus Christ does. So why do we do the water? Why do we do the food? Because Jesus did the same thing. Jesus did not go out that day to feed 5,000 people. He didn't say to his disciples, let's start a food truck program. Let's go out and gather some people. Jesus went out to meet with those people to give them the bread of life, the word of God. But in the process, he discovered they were hungry. So what did he do? He fed them. Why did he do it? It's not part of his agenda. Why did he feed them? Simple answer. They were hungry. Why do we feed two million children every day? That's not what compassion exists for. We do it because we love them and they're hungry. But that in itself will never change the heart of a child or their family. But when a child, when an adult comes in contact with Jesus Christ, they are changed forever. I want to show you a little picture of a guy named Samuel. And Samuel is... uh, he he's, scouts he's down there, and he's holding something in his hand. You can't probably see it, but it's a, photogra- it's a photograph of his sponsor, someone like you and me. I love, this, I love this image because it speaks so clearly of the body of Christ. So here's Samuel, a very poor child from a very destitute family. He's in the compassion program at the local church. These adults behind him, you've heard heard the adage that it takes a village to raise a child, right? It's an old African proverb. This is the village around him. These are all Christ followers from the church where the project is. One's the cook, one's a night watchman, one's the gardener, one's the project secretary, one is a tutor that helps him with his homework. Each one of them has a role to play. They're all speaking into his life. They're all moving him along that journey to wholeness and flourishing in Christ. But the person that makes that all possible is the person in the photograph, the sponsor, the missionary to Samuel. That's what sponsorship is with compassion. Sponsorship is not about giving money. 
Sponsorship is about being a missionary to a child, bringing the good news that Jesus talked about in Luke 4, 18. That's what changes lives. Every one of us, I'm sure, we want to be a missionary in some way. We want to impact the kingdom. I have not met a Christian anywhere that did not have a desire in some way to want to multiply the kingdom of God. We want to fulfill the Great Commission. We mean to. It's in our heart. But sometimes we just don't know how. We have a passion to share our love. All of that can come together when we invest in someone like a Samuel, someone like a Jay, someone like that young boy in Bolivia who is now the pastor. So my challenge to you today is to think more strategically. You might remember the name of my latest book is Strategic Compassion. It's really a book on the theology of poverty, but I want to challenge Christians to think strategically, not just throw money at need, but to think strategically. What does God want us to do? And how should we accomplish that? I want to show you a video in closing of, a, of another friend of mine. Uh, this, this guy is one of our alumni. Uh, his name is Richmond. He's from Uganda. And he grew up, like so many of our children, a very destitute family. He's going to tell you a bit of his story. And he accepted Jesus Christ at the Compassion Project in the local church, surrounded by Christians. And his life today, like so many of our children who are now adults, their lives are impacting many, many people for the kingdom. It's, It's the effect of multiplicity. Every single day in our compassion world, about four to 500 children and young people give their lives to Jesus Christ. Every single day. That's about one every four minutes. For every child that gives their life to Christ, our research tells us that about four family members eventually come to Christ. Put your mathematic skills together. That brings you way over 2,000 people a day. Every day of the year. Hearts are being changed by the gospel Lives are being changed. Change people, change their world. Listen to Richmond's story. My name is Richmond Wonder, and I was released from poverty in Jesus' name. That's one of thousands, tens of thousands of testimonies. I could share with you today, lives changed, and you heard him say it so well, lives changed, the food was appreciated, the health care was appreciated, all of that, but the gospel changed his life and his destiny. He is now bound for heaven because of the gospel. That's what we mean when we use the term sponsorship. Sponsorship is really just a fundraising mechanism. It's a way you raise money for a cause. 
what we do with sponsorship money, that $41 a month, we do that. We evangelize discipleship and equip children to serve God in their community. Richmond travels the world speaking, teaching. He's got an incredible ministry. He just graduated a couple of months ago from Moody Bible Institute with his PhD. He is doing things for God that you would have never, ever believed possible when you saw him walking through that slum. That's what we're calling for you today. So when we're finished here today, I invite you, I invite you to go back to our table in the foyer and say to one of our volunteers, I want to be a missionary to a child or 10 children or whatever, whatever your means allows you to do. And, and if you do that today, I want to give you a complimentary copy of my, my latest book in hopes that you will take more time than what I had today to go through the biblical theology of poverty and help you see God's heart for the poor. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you. Thank you so much that your word makes sense. When we try to make sense of the world in which we live, when we try to make sense of the destitution, the poverty, the corruption, it's so confusing. But when we look at your word, it actually makes sense. We see unfold before us the cause, the impact of poverty, and the cure. And we commit ourselves as Christ followers to that cure. That cure being the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.